Well, I want to welcome to the program Rod Bennett. Rod is the author of many books. Uh, the book we're going to focus on today is called These Twelve: The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. But boy, we're gonna there's a lot to cover. And Rod, I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for being willing to be with me today. This is going to be fun, Tom. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so Rod, uh, we're we're talking today. Um, it's a, a few days since this news came out about a sort of high visibility convert to the Catholic faith, uh, an actor who took on the part of Saint Padre Pio, mm. and in taking on the part, getting close to that saint, lo and behold, he experiences a conversion. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, I've kept up with that just a little bit. Yeah, that's Sheila Booth, and it's, uh, I don't even know if I pronounced that name correctly, but... Close enough. Um, it's French, so I don't think any of us can get it. Yeah, <laughs> just I kind of say it kind of garbled, and, and, right. I, and I got it, right? Yeah, close, and pretty I just close. Thought, I just thought that was a really interesting thing, that, you know, here's an actor who maybe didn't have, like, let's say the most Christian or faith-filled reputation, somehow got drawn to this part, and then in... Um, immersing himself in the part comes out the other side, a convert to the Catholic faith. I yeah. thought that was really awesome. Absolutely. And right. yeah. I, when I hear that, I think, Rod, does that mean anything to you? Drawing close to saints, immersing yourself in their lives and right, coming right. out the other end Catholic. Does that have any touch points with your life? Yeah, it was, that was pretty much the story of how I got into this business of talking about the church fathers, which sort of, Seems to be the thing I get called upon to do pretty pretty often. Uh, as an evangelical Christian, I was uh, you know pretty ignorant of all of this, but uh, I kept reading about these characters called the early fathers in places like C.S. Lewis and then G.K. Chesterton, one of Lewis's mentors, and and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Let me look into this a little bit. I, I would be interested to hear what writers from the early church. Uh, actually wrote down because uh, we'd always had this sense in evangelicalism that there was Christ and the apostles. And then there was this big gap where who knows what happened, mostly bad stuff. And uh, uh, then Martin Luther came along and, and uh, enlightened the world. And so uh, one of the most astonishing thing was to discover that so much of it still existed. Uh, just thousands and thousands of pages of documentation that dated from before Constantine within the first 200 years of Christianity. And uh, that's a fascinating idea to somebody who has always been a bit of a history buff. So yeah, looking at uh, uh, write, the writings and the lives of those early saints was, was foundational for my change in faith, my, uh, uh, my discovery of, uh, of Catholic Christianity. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. The saints, uh, did it again, this time the saints being the, the early fathers of the church. So I get asked, when you were doing that exploration, um, there were obviously obstacles that were holding you back that had to be removed um, from a theological standpoint, from a mindset framework standpoint, right? Uh, typical objections, we all know about those. But think about someone like this actor, like Sheila Booth, he makes this journey into the Catholic faith. And, and some of it was this, this intellectual side of things. But for you, let's talk about you, Rod. Um, was there a, let's call it a personal 
cost even, a personal cost for you being a fervent evangelical to all of a sudden have to say it out loud to someone for the first time. Um, I'm becoming Catholic, Roman Catholic Christian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, do you, yeah. do, you, do any stories jump out at you as like, I, yeah, I remember the first time I said it, or I remember that time I said it to that particular group. Right. Well, the, on the whole, I tend not to uh, tell stories about the great cost that I've paid for this. Cause if I, if people want to, if the Lord wants to remember those things, as I trust that he will, uh, that I leave that to him. I don't go around talking about how much I've suffered because of what I've done. Uh, let's let other people do that. Uh, if there's any of that to be done, but I will say that, uh, you, you make it so specific. Was there one person who said one thing there was the first thing my father said when I told him that my father, a, a good lifelong Southern Baptist grew up in the hills of East Tennessee, uh, First thing he said to me was, don't you know that the mafia runs the Catholic church? <laughs> now, it, as much of a silly uh, uh, trope as that sounds to be, my dad actually knew a little something about the mafia when he was uh, a sailor in the late 50s in the U.S. Navy. They stopped at the port of Naples in the Mediterranean, and uh, he was walking down the uh, street in his whites, sailor, sailor whites, Cracker Jacks. And uh, some men stopped him along with his friends and said, uh, we've got a, a man inside, uh, 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 a man who likes the United States and has been away for a while and is lonesome to hear some American voices. So they took him inside this restaurant and the man was uh, the very famous gangster, Lucky Luciano, who uh, uh, is one of the most famous of the uh, uh, the uh, mafia bosses. And, and sure enough, he'd been, people who know a little of the history of it know he'd been uh, exiled, deported uh, from the United States back to Italy. And uh, he was, he was nostalgic. So he picked up my dad and some of his friends and laid on a big Italian feed at this restaurant. And uh, they spent the afternoon with uh, the most famous uh, mafioso of their era. So my, <laughs> my dad wasn't talking entirely out of his hat. He'd had something to do with the, uh, uh, with, uh, with this guy, these kind of people. So, but yes, he also had some, some prejudices. So I will that's say so that, uh, that that's a, uh, that's one of the, one of the franker ones I've heard. Well, did he, uh, I have to ask, I mean, sure, did he ahead. say, Oh, and, and you know, if there's a secret back door into the Vatican and I go see the Pope, you know, once a month or something like that. Was there any? <laughs> no, like, I, I don't think it was like that. Uh, okay. They, uh, uh, you know, it is true that even when a man is uh, on the outs with God as a Catholic, he often cherishes the idea that he's coming back one day. You know, mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, in, in Southern Baptist and other evangelical circles, you'll find a real rogue pretty often who, uh, is relying very heavily on once saved, always saved, eternal security. He walked the aisle when he was nine years old. And yes, his life's a hell of a mess right now, but uh, he's, he's going to get by because of what he did when he was nine. Well, the Catholic version of that is, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I may not be a good Catholic, but I'm going to get it straightened out one day. One day, they're counting on the idea of making a good confession before they, uh, before they meet their maker. That doesn't always happen. Uh, and that's something to worry about. So it's best not to rely on this, but, uh, 
But I think that's probably uh, the truth about many people who are involved in crime and other other things like that. It, in a way, it's a testimony to the church. Obviously, it's an abuse. But in a way, it's a testimony to the church, the idea that uh, uh, that I, I'm still a Catholic at heart. And that is true. Theologically, it's true that if you have been baptized, you're a Christian. You may very well go to hell as a Christian. And uh, we've got it on pretty good authority that the hell is hotter for those who have that much light uh, than it is for the poor pagan who doesn't know his right hand from his left. So uh, uh, it's a it's a dangerous piece of of uh, fireworks to be playing around with. But uh, there is something about the idea innate in all of the baptized that I really belong to Christ mm-hmm. in some profound sense that doesn't go away. Uh, that of course lays great responsibility on you and mm-hmm. not something to be trifled with as many people do. But, yeah. uh, uh, but that's uh, one of the things that I actually like about my, my Catholic faith is that uh, people may leave, leave the church, but the church never leaves now. So. Yeah. Amen. Well, yeah. important, right? I, I love that God's mercy is available to us and, and don't give up. I know like folks that are watching or listening to this interview right now, they may have some that, family members, right? Dear, near and dear to them that are far from God. And in this, there's that sense of, you know, clinging, clinging to their intercessory prayers, asking the blessed mother and just restore this dear soul of mine back to the, back to mm-hmm. the the true home in the Catholic faith, just get them back to God, right? That's their right, right. greatest suffering. And even trusting that their suffering is going to somehow be used by God for good. Well, you bring up an interesting point. It is absolutely true that uh, we all have an obligation uh, uh, in the Ten Commandments to uh, honor our father and our mother. Uh, my own mother, bless her, uh, uh, is not Catholic and has no intention of, do- of becoming one. But uh, sometimes she'll say things like, uh, uh, well, I don't think people should change their religion, or I don't think people uh, should, uh, should argue doctrine uh, with other types of Christians and stuff. Now, she didn't say that when I was an evangelical missionary. <laughs> I, I went to other countries, some of them Catholic, traditionally Catholic countries, to try to get people to change their religion. And that wasn't really how she felt about it then. So, uh, but uh, that's, that's, but it is true that uh, there's, it's not wrong to say that a person shouldn't treat the, a change of religion from what they were raised in lightly. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't uh, uh, do it. Uh, uh, loosely or inadvisedly. In other words, I think it really does. The, the Decalogue uh, commands us, I think, to, uh, to stick with what we were, uh, how we were raised as long as we can in good conscience. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you have to get to the point where you would be uh, acting in bad faith not to, uh, to make a change of faith when you've actually reached a point where you have new convictions. But I don't poo-poo the idea that it's a weighty matter to uh, to uh, question or or begin to step away from the, the faith that you were given at home. Those are beautiful and, and weighty thoughts. What you just said, I really I really appreciate that. What you just shared. We're talking um, today with Rod uh, Bennett, and Rod's the author of the book These Twelve: The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. We're going to talk about that book, Rod, in in just a couple of minutes. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that 
as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Talking um, today with Rod Bennett, but what you just said spurred a, um, a text messaging that I was having and then a phone conversation with my oldest daughter. So my oldest daughter uh, is uh, now in conversation with a prominent pastor of an evangelical church about potentially becoming Catholic. And he has, um, he's done a lot of study, ta-da, and the more that he studies the uh, the early church, the more that he studies um, the faith, he's bumping up against real dilemmas, especially around the Eucharist and the sacraments. And he is facing one of those moments that you talked about. And I love how you said it. You said something, I'm not, it's kind of a paraphrase and kind of, you know, get me in line here that you can stay in the faith that you were born in until you feel like you can't in good conscience continue to do that. And then you have to honor what the Lord is calling you to do. Yeah. And, and that's where he's at. He's at this like heavy, heavy weighty moment where he's invested a long time, a number of years and years and years building up a very active, prominent church. Oh yeah. And um, my daughter is hearing him preach and talking about the sacraments all the time. And, and she would text me and call me and say, dad, he's talking all about the sacraments. Cause my daughter, um, she's very fervent Catholic and goes uh, to mass, right? She's a very fervent Catholic, but she also did missionary work with evangelicals and lives with evangelicals. And so she'll actually go to these worship services in addition to mass. And she's influencing all these evangelicals to consider becoming Catholic, believe it or not. Well, he has a question and, and he's like, what books would you recommend me to read on this journey to help me get some bearings on what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I think he said that the the issue that he still wrestles with is the um, the role of the Pope in the early church and then um, and, and the way that that would continue down to today. So you know, I guess the concept of the apostolicity of the church and especially right, right. Of, of the Pope. But I think also, I think he's trying to navigate the personal side. Like, what do I do with all this? <laughs> well, you know, it is. People don't take it seriously enough. I know, having traveled in these circles for some years now, I know a lot of men who really have uh, taken up their cross by becoming Catholic. I mean, it's no joke. Uh I mean, for many of these guys, it was like putting a gun to their head because, I mean, think about it. If you've been trained as an evangelical minister, you went to college and then you went to uh, seminary, put all this education and training into it. The minute you become Catholic, you're unemployed and your education counts for nothing. It, uh, uh, I know men who were uh, pastors, evangelical pastors who wound up selling insurance and real estate and things like that. Nothing wrong with those kinds of employment, but uh, 
I wish that we had a better answer for those men in the Catholic Church. I know that the Lord has a place for for people of that type uh, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, who uh, the, we as Catholics need to honor the fact that they were called by God to the ministry. They've just had to clarify some things since that since that call. But uh, uh, but so far, there's not been a great rush to to, to make these men uh, uh, deacons or any of the other things that. So there's a huge body of uh, Men who literally took up their cross, and uh, uh, you know how many how many of us would take our educate our diploma and flush it down the commode like that? Mm-hmm. How many? Not many. These are people who counted the cost in the way that few of us have these days, and because of that, we we have to take very seriously what it is we're we're asking them to do, asking them to do in the sense that. Uh, if, if they reach convictions about the subject, as we've talked about, what is it we're asking them to do and how do, how do they go forward after that? It's a very, very serious question. And, uh, uh, I don't have complete answers. Uh, I know there's no question that, that we're called to, uh, to whatever kind of martyrdom he calls us to. And you, Mm -hmm. you know, if he says, uh, you know, if the Lord tells us to, to uh, jump, we're like the frog. We just ask how high, you know. Right. But after that, you do have some interest in how you're going to feed your family and all the rest of it. Very, very, very serious business. And uh, uh, and uh, God bless people like Marcus Grodi who've taken some trouble to actually try to, to help these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I was hoping for a more like a more positive answer from the standpoint of, oh, the church has done such an amazing job in the last 30 years to welcome in those who carry those heavy burdens and make the courageous decision. And I think it's so convenient uh, just to say, well, it's the truth. You have no choice. You've got to just do it and then walk away and go sit down and eat some popcorn and watch Netflix, right? And not have to walk the, in their shoes. Uh, it's, the, it's the Calvary Road for a lot of these guys, many yeah. of them. And uh, no, it's not something we, we can uh, dismiss lightly. In fact, we need to be thanking God. I mean, these men are, in a real sense, confessors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're suffering for the fullness of, of the Catholic faith. And uh, we ought to approach them the way we do the confessors of the uh, early church. Well, today in the program, I, I, Rod, I love what you're saying. I mean, it's... Uh, but you're someone who's also walked that path, right? And you've you've had a gifting in being a writer and so in a speaker. And so I guess that, that would be one thing I ask. Uh, maybe is a, do you feel that your own gifting and mission is as a communicator, whether that is in speech or in writing? Or do you consider yourself a, a writer who happens to speak or a speaker who a teacher who happens to write? How do you name your own? I, sense I've of thought mission? about this. I think my main gift is I don't dignify it by saying a teacher. And in fact, the Lord gave us a warning about people who want to call themselves teachers. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Don't not many of you should be called teachers. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll disavow teacher, but uh, I will say uh, I, I think I'm an explainer. I think I do a pretty good job explaining things that are, that people need explained. So nice. uh, put me down as an explainer. And that's what so you're not going to let me kind of uh, box you in. Do you like to explain better in speech or on paper? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the same process for me. I, I Is just, it really? Um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay. The the books give me a chance to put it down more carefully and thoughtfully than when I'm up in front of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but I, you know, any chance I get, I take it. So if people want nothing, there's nothing I love better than, than somebody to come and say, look, I don't understand this about the infallibility of the Pope and the rest of it. I get excited. And I go, man, this is really interesting. Let's go through it step by step. I think I can yes. help you to understand it. That's my gift. And that's what I do. And that's when I'm happiest is when I'm doing that. So. Well, and boy, what a what a great way to spend your life, right? If you have the gift of being able to spend your days explaining the faith so that people go from confusion to clarity, from ignorance to insight, right? From doubt to faith. Wow, what a what a privilege. It it is when it's actually uh been my privilege to uh to help some to bring somebody to faith. Uh it's uh, uh a sense that you know it's all been worth it you know mm-hmm. gee george you really had a wonderful life you know right <laughs> well you know for folks that are listening i know that some of them feel very daunted uh it's like a daunting idea to them to share faith in a way that can actually make a difference now they're not they don't have the same background that you had and and the same formation and or the same maybe expertise in writing but I'd love for you to, can you give us a little glimpse into that world in terms of the the difference it could make to someone? Uh, Can you remember uh, an encounter, maybe a surprising encounter that you didn't expect to have happen where they said, hey, Rod, can you explain this to me? And then God moved and something really glorious happened. Oh, yeah. That's happened to me numerous times, thank God. And, uh, you know, you get to you get invited to people's uh, Easter vigil and uh, to their uh, other, you know, events in life. And it's wonderful. So, uh, and again, it's, uh, I don't say that in a kind of a triumphalist sense. I think triumphalism usually comes with the idea that you're trying to get somebody to join your tribe. Right. That you're, that you're, I, I've got a secret weapon. I tell people converts have a secret weapon. Uh, I told this to a group of priests. Uh, Catholicism is not my faith tradition. My faith tradition is the Billy Graham crusade and uh, uh, fried chicken in the fellowship hall after prayer meeting on Wednesday night. That's my faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, that's, you, you've got the May crowning and the other things. So I've got that. Okay. Catholicism is my religion. So my faith tradition and my religion are at odds, which causes problems at times. But other times I can, I can acquit myself very honestly, even in my own heart, of the idea of trying to get somebody to come and join my tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, most, most Catholics, I think, have got this lingering idea that I was raised Catholic. I've never thought about being anything but Catholic. I would right. break Aunt Mary's heart if I became anything besides Catholic. And uh, so if I go and try to get people to become Catholic, I mean, it's kind of like hooray for our side, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not really my side. You know, I don't have a dog in the fight when it comes to uh, faith traditions, but uh, I can just go and tell people what I discovered, what I found. And so it gives you a power to uh, to talk to people free of the, the one thing that people hate most these days, young people, especially this idea that you're just trying to, to reinforce your own doubts by getting as many people possible to, uh, to sign on the dotted line on for your, your group. And, uh, so if you don't have that, you do, you'd have an ability to talk to people that, uh, that you, that's pretty powerful sometimes. 
That's so funny because I never, like, I, I would never have thought of it like that, the way you just said it, that somehow I'm trying to argue, convince you to join me so that I, I feel more confident that what I believe is right. Or yeah, right. I, I never really thought of it like that. That is so interesting. Yeah, it's it comes from uh, being born out in the wilderness somewhere, which <laughs> theologically speaking, I was. So. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, and and that's the kind of the age we're in right now. So, well, I'm I'm talking with Rod Bennett, and Rod he has a new book, right? It's called These Twelve: The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. And I want to share. Um, you're an author of many books, and so I have all these books here. Uh, if you're if you're watching the the video version of this, you're seeing all these books on Goodreads. Do you know that this site exists here? All your books. Yeah, in I one know a little book. about it. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. So all of these books, Four Witnesses is your probably your most famous book. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that that's no, probably right. the book. Yeah. Most people um, that have connected with you, Ignatius Press published Four Witnesses. And, um, and, and you talk about in some ways what you're just, you've described a little bit at the beginning, your journey into the Catholic faith and through, through digging into exploring these four early witnesses. But what I was um, pleasantly surprised to discover is the variety of writings that you have really fascinating. So this Christus experiment book, uh, I thought that was really, so you've got this fascinating fiction out here and I didn't know the popcorn cathedral essays at the junction of film, faith, and fantasy. You wrote that, uh, in addition to obviously formal witnesses. Um, and then a real interesting book, bad shepherds, the dark years in which the faithful thrived, um, while bishops did the devil's work. And I thought, well, that's a really bold book to publish in 2018. And well, my publishers, and my publisher of that one has admitted that they uh, uh, didn't market it correctly. The, uh, <laughs> my title for it, for one thing, was The Bad Shepherds, as opposed to The Good Shepherd. And that article makes a difference. The, the, the phrase Bad Shepherds sounds like I'm making an accusation. And the bad shepherds tells the real story. This is a history of, of clerical malfeasance through the first 1700 years or so of Christianity. But really, the purpose of the book is encouragement. Uh, people often say, man, is it, this got to be the end of the world. The Lord's got to come back soon because it's never been as bad as this in, in, in the churches. And well, for the first thing I say when people tell me that is, uh, well, as believers in the imminent return of Christ, we believe that there's nothing preventing Christ from returning today. Today could be the second coming, okay? So I can't actually say that, that today is not, it's not the end of the world, <laughs> that Christ is not coming back today. But if, if it is, it's not because things have never been this bad before. So this book is a story of how things have been this bad and much worse in the past. Uh, it's really unbelievable some of the depths, <laughs> the depths of incredible uh, uh, depravity is the only word for it that have embraced uh, so-called Christian people through the ages. So uh, that sounds terrible. And I guess in a way it is, it is a book of horror stories, but the whole purpose of the book was to, was to, to let people not fall into discouragement and not believe. It, it, I think it was Chesterton who said, uh, People have accused uh, uh, Catholicism of dying in our time. Uh, he said, well, that's okay because the church has died many times in the past. 
which is uh, okay because uh, uh, she knows the way back from the grave. <laughs> and uh, I think that's one of my great, my favorite Chesterton. Uh, but that's what this book is about, is, uh, is about how things have been much worse than they are now, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't naively think of the Christian past as the good old days, uh, uh, the golden age. Uh, you know, they didn't do this stuff back in the day. They did. Mm-hmm. And they did, a, did, it, did it a lot better than we, than we do, amateurs, you know. So uh, uh, it's, uh, but it is, it's a, it's a pretty hair-raising book, but it's not uh, accusatory and it's not, doesn't have much to do with what's going on in today's church politics. Uh, the narrative of the book ends in the year 1798, I think. So, uh, so <laughs> it's not current events. And they gave it a cover with, uh, uh, with some modern day looking clerics with their back turned to that. Uh, they agreed later that it was, they put an inflammatory cover and probably, <laughs> probably gave people the wrong impression of the book. The few who did buy it were disappointed. They didn't get the cover. Uh, they didn't get the story that they expected from the cover. Well, and I think at the time, right, there were a lot of folks who were trying to navigate, like, what do we do? How do we make sense of what was happening during the summer of shame, right? Well, this this book certainly includes, I certainly do draw in the afterward of the book some conclusions about how the church was saved in previous ages. Well, and that's the point. That's what I want. I'm interested in is like, okay, so what brought the church in those ages from death to resurrection, can you point to certain handholds that God seems to use when the church dies, if you will? I'm just putting it in quotes, right? Church dies because the church, you know, obviously the church is indefectible, but, you know, when the church goes from corruption to, um, to a sense of, of radiance, um, any, what would you, what would you say would be some of the. I won't spoil the ending. I'm having a hard enough time selling the darn thing anyway, without spoiling, <laughs> giving it away for free on here. So there we go. <laughs> but, uh, but I will say that, uh, it's a historical, it's a, it's a, an interesting historical fact that some of the worst times in the history of the church, when it comes to the clergy have been some of the best times for the laity. Ironic as that sounds, uh, paradoxical as it may sound, that uh, out of these great ages of, uh, of shipwreck or near shipwreck, mm-hmm. uh, the, the thing that seems to have saved the church is the faith of the, of the average lay person, the, uh, uh, the person in the pews who uh, uh, has, has kept their eyes on the prize and hasn't had their head turned by politics and money and all the rest of it. The, uh, uh, the, it, it's just one of the most interesting facts about this history is the, the, the low points in some ways were the high points often for the production of great saints from among the laity and uh, uh, that it, God seems to save and rescue the, uh, the, the lay person many times uh, and the uh, and the layperson ends up being what what saves the whole bucket of milk eventually. So. Well, Rod, that is extremely important, uh, and all by itself makes me say I'm going to buy the book. Well, good. Uh, if you're looking for purpose. sales, if you're looking for sales, <laughs> you just got to sale right here oh, well, good, because good, good. Um, I am sincerely I, I speak regularly with folks who are trying to figure out like what's happening. Where are our leaders? Is this one of those times that has some common elements with 
the the seasons of bad shepherds in the past. No, no doubt about some common elements. No doubt at all. Okay. So, uh, even I, when I was before I was a Catholic, I used to tell people my least favorite part of being a Christian is church politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the least edifying part of the entire business. And uh, uh, for the most part, I try to uh, uh, I try to keep abreast of current events. I, I am a sort of a person who uh, who doesn't put his head in the sand and, and keeps an eye on what's going on. But at the same time, uh, 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 having having some historical perspective on it makes a difference. You, we can go about the work that needs to be done today without panic, uh, without uh, doing. I'm afraid what has been done all too often, and that is seeking uh, help against our own shepherds from the secular arm. Mm-hmm. That's another theme in this book that uh, about how rarely that turns out to be a good idea. And uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of this sort of stuff in, in the book. But uh, yeah, I, I want to be careful. It's not a political book. It keeps its head or tries to keeps its head above the fray, I think. But, right. uh, but there are some lessons to be learned. Well, and so this book, which wasn't even the book I was here to interview you about, interestingly. <laughs> we have said just, precious little about it. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's push the ball out there. Well, folks, <laughs> again, if I'm going to recommend three different presses, too, the way that we're going here. So Four, Four Witnesses is Ignatius Press. And again, that's probably your most famous book. And it was followed up by Four More Witnesses, Further Testimony from Christians Before Constantine. Fo- so followed up 20 years later, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yes. It's it's a sequel that came out pretty late. Yes. So again, I encourage you, you can go to Ignatius.com. And and if you type in Rod's name, Rod Bennett's name right there, you'll see all of his books will come up uh, that you can purchase there. And then um, four more witnesses included in that. Um, and then if you're interested in some, uh, interested in some fiction, the Christus experiment, I don't think we have time to talk about all these books, <laughs> No, uh, but no, I just, Christus again, experiment is a science fiction novel. I, I, honestly, I love science fiction. So I, I, it made me, when I read the, the, uh, the, uh, when I read the description of it, it made me think it was a kind of reverse, um, Da Vinci code right. was kind of. Am I on track there a little bit? It, it, you are. It's uh, something when all of that was, when the Da Vinci Code movie came out, I started thinking, wouldn't it be great if Christians could uh, could make a popular success? I mean, if they can make a big Hollywood movie about uh, how Christianity is a load of bunk, we can, uh, we can make one that, that gives the offset message and stuff. But uh, 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 the, the movie version didn't happen, but I did get to write a, did get to write a novel. Hey, maybe you can get uh, Mel Gibson to be Anson McDonald, <laughs> your your main yeah. character. Come on, I don't think he'd mind playing a billionaire. <laughs> You're right. It's a thought. Yeah. Huh? It's a thought. Huh? Well, give him give him my number if you okay. uh, next time you see him. Well, and then uh, bad, the bad, bad Shepherds, the dark years in which the faithful thrived while bishops did the devil's work against a historical work that also can shine a light on today is Sophia Institute Press. So sophiainstitute.com, you can just click on there and you'll see uh, the ability if you, if you type in Rod's name. Again, you'll get to the book Bad Shepherds and other books that also Rod wrote for Sophia Institute Press.
Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Well, I'm, I'm talking with Rod Bennett, and um, you're an author of many books. Um, but today, we're here focusing on what you've done for Catholic Answers, which is more than one book, but these 12, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes, is really the book we're here to discuss. And it's interesting because I see themes that are part of your other books, but this is distinctive. I don't see other books written in this particular style. And in the introduction, you kind of highlight that. You kind of highlight the, the distinct mode of like what you brought to bear in this book. Well, there's an element of a thought experiment in everything I've done. The records of the early centuries, while they're much fuller than I expected them to be as an evangelical, are not actually biographies or, or histories of the period, not often anyway. And so as a result, uh, you have to piece it together a bit like a puzzle. And one of the reasons that the average person doesn't know more about the early fathers, why there's such a big blank spot on most people's mental map, even Catholics who, who really should know better, uh, the idea that the early church was a kind of a terra incognita, dark, dark continent on the map of history, and that you can treat it like a uh, 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 treat it like a uh, ink blot ink blot test. You can read into whatever you want to the early church because it, it's so little is known about it. In reality, there's a lot known about it, but uh, but it is scattered notices in the sense that nobody sat down. Well, I mean, the, the New Testament itself does it. Everything we know about the life of St. Paul, other than the things that are actually included in the book of Acts, which only records the very beginning, uh, are things we've gathered from his epistles, just, just scattered notices. We can pick up a few things about his movements and his life from things that were not written for that purpose. Paul didn't write the second letter of the Thessalonians to, uh, to tell us what he was doing at that time and all the rest of it. Well, you have to do that with the early fathers too. And as a result, it's difficult work. It's like putting a, a puzzle together to, uh, to figure out the relationship between the characters and who, who was contemporary with which other figure and what was going on in Roman politics at the time or what was going on at the Church of, of Alexandria at the time this was happening at the Church of Rome, all of that. So you, you need somebody to, uh, who can take all of those things and uh, make a story out of it. And it does require a certain amount of imagination. Uh, that doesn't mean you're allowed to make things up whole cloth, but you can make educated guesses. Mm -hmm. And especially if you alert people in advance to the fact that I'm doing this and I'm being honest with you that I'm, I'm using my imagination to piece the pieces of the puzzle together. But if I've done it, uh, if I've speculated too loosely or, or uh, recklessly in some place, well, it's all the better. You go back and read this material yourself and, uh, uh, and you draw your own conclusions about it. So, but there is an imaginative effort involved in 
all of the writing I've done, but these 12 is about seeing, trying to see the gospel through the eyes of the apostles. And that was uh, one of the ways that the gospel came alive again for me after becoming Catholic was to try to imagine myself as a first century Galilean Israelite, seeing Christ come into your country and begin doing what he did for the first time. How would it look to them and what would they, what, how would everything they're saying, uh, he's saying affect them and doing affect them? And how would they understand it? And, uh, and I found the longer that I did that and the harder that I worked at it, I really got uh, a very profitable, I think, take on the life of Christ that I hadn't really seen before uh, of, of, of trying to act as if you were hearing it all for the first time, as if you were just uh, a, a foreigner who, uh, had never had any exposure, excuse me, exposure to it. So that was the idea. And that is why maybe this is a little different than what most people have, uh, have heard on this subject. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I, um, I found it. Um, so Nico's cousin Zaka's the last temptation of mm-hmm. Christ, get rid of the movie, right. but right. the book, I think in some ways I thought a bit of that, but your book is much richer, right? It, in that it's connected to the scriptures and then you tease out those those other themes. Like, did you realize that this is what that meant? And this is probably where we can go with it. Or The Life of Christ by uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen is maybe someone that people are a little more for, uh, comfortable that, that with. That was an influence on this, I suppose, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even um, there are a couple of visionaries, right, who have had the sort of like the different scenes almost through the entire life of Christ and and like telling lots of, like details about like what was it like when they're walking down the road. But what I found was um, interesting about what you did was you stayed closer to the text and, and saying, Hey, did you ever notice just as a, for instance, right? We can go through several of them, but one of the kind of took my breath away was uh, the transition from the first to the second chapter from Nathaniel which we could talk all about, which is a really, really fascinating chapter to the wedding feast at Cana. And I'm like, well, yeah, they're next to each other in the Bible, but I never thought, oh, Nathaniel went from his encounter with Christ to the wedding. Directly to the wedding. I mean, it's like the next day or the day after, I think. Right, right. And I'm like, wait a minute, how did that, how did I never think about that before? And then how do you mine the experience of Nathaniel when he's there. And then you teased out these other elements, like, you know, it mentions the other apostles. I'm like, what? It does not. And then I'm like, oh, how did I never see that before? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Good good reason to think that many of the, uh, that many of the 70 were there also, not just the 12, but the larger group, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which included, seems to have included many, uh, other famous New Testament figures. Uh, we can trust uh, the the early historian Theodoret. He gives us a list of the names of some of the 70. And uh, we get people whose names pop up later in the New Testament epistles and in the book of Acts, who uh, it's just cool to think that, that, that Matthias, for example, who was picked to be the replacement for Judas, uh, was probably at the wedding at Cana too. He was one of the set this larger group of seventy. In fact, I think it's Bishop Sheen who says the reason that uh, 
they ran out of wine uh, was because so many of Jesus's disciples uh, kind of crashed the party too, you know, and that uh, there was a much bigger group of uh, of disciples than than was expected. So, uh, and that that was that was a little nugget from Bishop Sheen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You brought that up in the book. These twelve yeah. again, the Gospel through the Apostles' eyes. You can go to Catholic Answers website, Catholic.com. You click on the shop button. And then you can type in these 12 and this book props up, or you can type in Rod's name, I'm Rod Bennett, who's, who's with me today on the program. Talking um, today with Rod Bennett and Rod's the author of the book, These 12, The Gospel Through the Apostle's Eyes. Now you mentioned, Rod, um, that this book was in some ways the fruit of decades of meditative reflection. And I, I really I, I appreciated that because what I what it what I took from it. Here's what I took from it. Tell me if I'm wrong, and then I'd like you to apply it to a chapter. Um, is when we th- Catholics think of meditation, um, you think about getting into the location of the place itself. You you compose that place with your imagination, and a lot of us are not using our imagination with as much informing as we could with all the data that's available in the scriptures. Right, and right. you're even saying from tradition too. Um, so in some ways, this book feels like it was probably the longest book for you to write because it's, it's, it's 40 years in the making. Yeah. I have a notebook um, uh, of notes on this project from 1984. So that is so <laughs> it, cool. Uh, that, and that by the way was, 12 years before I became Catholic. So So you're saying that some of the insights that are in this book published in 2022 have a history. It just means I'm a real slow writer. (laughs) (laughs) Or perfectionist or, 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 right. Yeah. Um, No, I just think that's amazing. So um, I've got other chapters I could talk about. Which one was your favorite to write? Um, I have a guess. Okay. What's the guess? Exodus. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, uh, things are getting for real at that point. You know, it so. feels like it. It feels like yeah. it. But go ahead. Why don't you but tell I'm, I'm actually also very fond of the book about the uh, uh, about the uh, change of priesthood, because I, I, I give a uh, I give an argument for the foundation of the new Christian priesthood based in the episode of the, uh, yeah, of the, when the apostles were gathering the, the wheat off of the stalks as they passed through the fields and were accused by the Pharisees of uh, breaking the law. Uh, it, it's a book about what seems to be the foundation of the priesthood, and it is, and it's about the, the issues connected with the law, but really it's a chapter about the divinity of Christ because the only answer to how Christ could have treated the law of Moses the way he did without being a sinner is that he is in fact the incarnation of the second person, the divine Trinity. That is the only possible answer. And because other than that, he's a lawbreaker. He's convicted by the other books in the, uh, uh, in the Bible itself. You know, you can cite all of the things in the book of Deuteronomy that, uh, uh, that Jesus didn't do and all the laws that he dispensed with. And uh, unless you have, the only answer to that is our Lord's own answer to it. He says, uh, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which is his way of saying, I made the Sabbath. 
I didn't make it for myself. I made it for you. It, it never applied to me. I, I guess I've kept it up to now, but now uh, uh, the time has come for uh, me to fulfill the Sabbath, bring it to its proper end, and uh, and bear the, let the Sabbath bear the fruit, which is the redemption of humanity by by means of me, the man Jesus. So it's a breathtaking answer, but uh, uh, it's really the only answer. Yeah, the chapter started with saying uh, why. Uh, when you, a casual reader picks up the Gospels, one of the first things they notice is that it seems like little more than a series of unpleasant encounters with the existing religious authorities. Mm-hmm. Why is it that the Gospels are filled up so full of un- bad encounters between Christ and the Pharisees? And it, one the bad habits we've gotten into is assuming that the Pharisees are just the bad guys. They're the villain of the piece. Uh, they we're setting up the fact that they're going to try to kill him eventually. But that's not really the answer. The answer is that the questions that the Pharisees are asking are the same questions that all of Israel has to answer before they can follow Jesus, and the same questions that the apostles were asking and that they would have to have answers to before they could uh, give their lives for Christ. So mm-hmm. that that's the short version of it. But uh, he, he, uh, he fulfills the law and brings it to an end, and that is the, the answer. And the only thing you can deal with at that point is to see, does that man have authority to do that? Mm-hmm. Does this man actually have the authority to unsay Moses? And, uh, uh, and that's why people stumbled over him. That's why they killed him eventually. And, mm-hmm. uh, but the, that connection between those two things is maybe the most important idea, or for me, one of, one of the most important ideas. I think it's well, the best argument for the divinity of Christ, so. Well, you know what? Yeah, most people don't think of that, right? When we think about what was it for the people who heard it, an argument for the divinity of Christ. Yeah, that that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and, and you actually, you just created a bridge to the Exodus chapter <laughs> where yeah. you have Peter engaging, you know, with who do you say that I am, right? And, right. and his profession of faith um, and that Jesus is going to be the new Moses bringing a new Exodus. Um, and so I think that, Helping readers be able to recognize this pattern, the great pattern um, of, of redemption from bondage to new life in the promised land of good things that God has for us, I think um, is powerfully brought out in that chapter. I hope so. Yeah. So, Rod, I'm going to give you a chance. We have time for one more chapter. Uh, is there okay. another one that you would want to draw attention to in the time that we have? We're talking again with Rod Bennett about his book, These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes, and many other books, which I, again, if you're on the video, you had a chance to see, but uh, Catholic.com has this book, These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. So I gave you some time there, Rod. Did you see That's what I okay. did? No, let me, uh, I won't pick a chapter, but I will tell one of my favorite stories that I oh, yeah. covered okay, in the preparation of all of this. One of the things that I hope the book will have a good effect on. Uh, one of the nasty habits that homilists have fallen into in recent years, and I think probably it's true of Protestant uh, preachers as well as Catholic, is that there's been this odd uh, unpleasant tendency to make the apostles into kind of the comic relief of the piece. There's a, a, how many times have we listened as somebody from the pulpit begins to talk about how uh, 
ignorant the apostles were, how often they put their foot in their mouth, or how how they often say something dumb or ask a dumb question or any of the other things. And there often is actual, depending on how good a comedian the homeless is, maybe he missed his true calling, I don't know, <laughs> but depending on how good a comedian the homeless is, he can get actual laughter from the audience at the, uh, at the expense of one of the 12 apostles. Mm-hmm. And many times the man's name is on the front of the church uh, that all this is happening in. Uh, I think it's a bad, bad tendency. If you look at the, uh, uh, if you look at the uh, writings of the early fathers, the way they speak about the apostles is only slightly less uh, exalted than the way they speak about our Lord himself. And this is natural. Uh, the, the Jesus said, you'll do the same works that I do and even greater works. So uh, uh, they, the reverence that the early fathers had for the 12 apostles was uh, uh, profound, and they, they would rent their garments to hear uh, Christians uh, have a, a laugh at Peter's expense. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, many times these homilists are trying to make a point of, okay, here, here is them, the men in their flesh, in their ordinary, uh, before the Holy Spirit, they're a bunch of buffoons, and then like us, often there's this connection to say, that, you know, if you're if you don't understand your faith and you don't, uh, you, you ask foolish questions, it's okay. The apostles did too. And then, uh, but later on when they got the Holy spirit, it, it, look at the profound difference. And I'm willing to grant that there's an element of truth there. If it were expressed more reverently, uh, mm-hmm. but the apostles, even before the coming of the Holy spirit were, uh, there for a reason. In other words, he did not gather up, a, a, a an armload of, uh, complete strangers who uh, he just picked at random by walking down the beach and saying this boatload and this boatload, not those, this boatload. Uh, That's not what happened. Uh, I devote some time to that uh, early in the book about how we know for a fact that at least four of them had been disciples of John the Baptist before they became disciples of Christ. And there's good reason to think that number was actually larger. It doesn't say so explicitly but probably at least half of them had studied for maybe years with John the Baptist. And Jesus himself tells us that John was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the rest of them, uh, that John was the greatest of all of them. So here's men who had been schooled in theology and scripture, the expectation of the coming Messiah for years by the greatest Old Testament figure before they ever showed up at the Sea of Galilee to be called by Christ. So uh, to make buffoons of them and talk about how ignorant they all are is a pretty stunning piece of ignorance in and of itself. Jesus did not pick random people. The whole Old Testament is the story of, uh, of God preparing Israel to be ready for Messiah and to recognize him when he came. And the names that we remember from that period the Blessed Virgin Mary, Elizabeth, uh, all the rest of the people who were waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel, and John himself. This was the remnant. This was the cream of the crop. These were the Israelites indeed who were doing what all of Israel was supposed to be doing, and that is wait, watchfully waiting for Messiah. So they weren't random people, and they, they, the, the mistakes they made and the uh, ignorant things they talk about in return to Messiah 
come from in regards to Messiah, come from the fact that it's an inherently difficult idea. The idea of recognizing Messiah is not easy. It's very easy in hindsight when you've had when you remember a little of your catechism classes, but it wasn't easy to see and recognize at the time it was happening, especially in that matter of the law breaking that we talked about. Rod, you've been very generous with your time and I really appreciate it in your sharing, your openness to, oh, to be with me I and walk it. through this. Yeah, I've been a very it. enjoyable uh, time together uh, on this yeah. program, on the interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being Thanks with so me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, that would be great, Rod. Again, catholic.com, look up uh, Rod Bennett and these 12.